Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the London School of Economics. Uh, those of you who are not already from here, I would imagine that's quite a few. We're going to spend the evening talking about the future of work. And for people like me, it's a pleasure to discuss a topic that probably won't have too much material influence on my life before I retire. For those of you who are younger, you might feel a slight more pinch of uh, urgency in the discussion, uh, which always makes up for a very good debate. So I'm joined today with Richard and Daniel Suskin, who um, in a short moment will present their main thesis in the, in the book. I have the book here. I'll put it up so you can see it. We have to remind ourselves this is also an advertisement event, and I will, of course, uh, highly recommend you read the book. I have read it cover to cover, and I think it's uh, one of the best synthesis of this topic. And I'm really looking forward to an interesting and engaging debate. Uh, I've had uh, a long-standing interest in the future of work, uh, and in particular in the role of technology in the future of work, and this very slim pickings with good, re good reads on this topic. And uh, so I think this is a, a very valid uh, element in the debate. I also need to remind you of a couple of things. These are all the boring things. Uh, so uh, under your chair, there will be a life jacket, uh, <laughs> that kind of thing. So uh, if there's an emergency, if the alarm goes off, don't run. Don't run this way. Leave a path open for the three of us. And, and generally just move backwards or upwards or... I also have to remind you, um, which is even more important, uh, that when you ask questions, that you actually ask questions. The Runsill test. Do as it says on the tin. Uh, don't start long conversations with yourself <laughs> or multiple versions of yourselves inside your head. Uh, whilst they might be more interesting than what goes on here, we just like having questions with question marks at the end so we can hear what these two uh, nice guys have to say. Apart from that, I'm sure there's lots of other things I should say, but uh, I think we need to get on with proceedings, and so there'll be a presentation after that. There'll be uh, questions from the auditorium, and there will be roaming microphones, so please wait until you have uh, the token that you're allowed to, means you're allowed to speak. Uh, that's it. Rock and roll. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be at the London School of Economics. What we're going to try and do in 40 minutes or so is summarize five years' work. And we're going to look at nine different subjects. Daniel's going to be saying a little about the two futures that we anticipate for the professions and then give a flavor of what we saw at the vanguard when we undertook research into the leading edge. I'll come back and say something about the trends and patterns we discerned across the professions why it is that we think technology is going to fundamentally change the future of work and of the professions in particular, and give you a sense then of the way in which professional services are evolving. I'll conclude that little bit by talking about artificial intelligence and what we call the second wave of AI. Daniel will come back and discuss the implications of this for jobs and for employment, and I'll close on speaking about the future of expertise and the moral issues that arise from our presentation. So over to Daniel to discuss the two futures. I'm sorry to interrupt. I forgot the most important thing, but I am an old geezer here. There's a, there's a hashtag, and you can enter the hashtag at LSE Suskind in singular. Sorry. 
So we're, we're often asked how we came to write the book together. <clears throat> what can I say about a co-author who in many ways has become like a father to me? <laughs> as, as, some, as, as some of you will know, my dad has been working in this field, in particular in the law, uh, for the past 30 years, looking at how technology affects the legal profession. Uh, and what he's found is that after talking to audiences of lawyers, occasionally at the end a stray doctor, a stray teacher... A stray architect would come up and say, you know, that's very interesting in the law, but what you're talking about applies equally well in our profession. Uh, five years ago, my dad and I were chatting about this. I, I was working the policy unit at the time in, in 10 Downing Street, working on tax policy, on health policy, on education policy, had a good overview of lots of different professions. And it was clear that significant change was in the air and that these professions appeared to face a common set of challenges. So we spoke about it. And we had the idea of joining forces and investigating the professions more generally, and the result was this book. So we look at eight professions. We held about 100 interviews, and we drew on hundreds of sources, both, uh, both traditional print publications and lots of online material as well. And the picture we get is of radical change, and our work is trying to make sense of this. And very broadly, we see two futures for the professions. The first, we say, is reassuringly familiar. It's just a more efficient version of what we have today. And on this model, professionals continue to work as they have done since the middle of the 19th century, but they use technology to streamline and to optimize their traditional ways of working. There's lots of examples of this. Doctors talking to patients via Skype, teachers using online material in the classrooms, architects using computer-assisted uh, design software to design taller and more complicated buildings. But the, the second future is a very different proposition. It involves a transformation in the way that expertise is made available in society. Here, technology not only streamlines and optimizes the traditional ways in which professionals have worked, but it ac actively displaces the work of traditional professionals. And in the short and medium term, we argue that these two futures will develop in parallel but in the long run, we expect this second future to dominate. We'll find new and better ways to produce and distribute expertise in society, and it will lead, we argue, to the dismantling of the traditional professions. And this is where the evidence and, and our thinking leads us. But our research also led us to ask a more fundamental question. You know, why do we have the professions at all? And our answer, and it runs through all of our work is that the professions in analogous ways are a solution to the same problem. You know, none of us has enough specialist knowledge to cope with all the daily challenges in life. No one can know everything. Human beings have what Herbert Hart called limited understanding. And so we look to doctors, teachers, lawyers, accountants, and so on, because they have the specialist knowledge that we need to get on in life. In what we call a print-based industrial society, the professions are the way that we solve these problems. Professionals have knowledge, experience, skills, know-how. The term for this that uh, we use is practical expertise that those they help do not. They operate under a grand bargain. The professions, often to the exclusion of others, are entitled to provide certain types of services. And they're entrusted to act as gatekeepers, each profession responsible for their own unique body of practical expertise. So doctors look after medical practical expertise, lawyers look after uh, legal practical expertise, and so on. So that's our analysis of the professions in a print-based society. But we're no longer in a print-based society. We're in what we call a technology-based internet society, 
and our professions are creaking. They're unaffordable in that most people in organizations can't afford the services of first-rate professionals or indeed any professionals. They're antiquated, relying upon old techniques for creating and, and sharing knowledge. They're opaque, and sometimes this is because the work that the professions do is genuinely too complex for a layperson to understand, but often we find cases of intentional obfuscation. And finally, they underperform you. Given the way that the professions are organized, the work and experience of the very best can only ever be enjoyed by a privileged and lucky few. The expertise of the finest specialists is a very, very scarce resource. And so we should ask the question, as we move from the print-based society to an internet society, might there be entirely new ways of organizing professional work, ways that are more affordable and more accessible than the traditional approach? Are there ways to make at least some practical expertise available on an online basis? Do we still need these old gatekeepers? And to help us think through these issues, we decided to find out what's going on at the Vanguard. We wanted to speak to leading thinkers and leading practitioners, and to give you a flavor of what we find, I want to take you through a set of cases now that that we think point to a very different future. More people signed up for Harvard's online courses in a single year than had attended the university in its entire 377 years of existence up until then. Khan Academy, it's uh, an online collection of practice problems and instructional videos. Uh, it's incredibly good quality. I use it to teach my students maths and economics. It has 10 million unique, use, uh, unique visitors each month. Now, that's, in a way, a higher effective attendance than the entire school population of England. The WebMD network, an online collection of health websites, provides extensive guidance on symptoms and treatments. It has 190 million unique users each month, not all of them hypochondriacs, and bear in mind, 190 million is more than the total of number of visits to all the doctors working in the U.S. Uh, The U.S. Food and Drug Agency has said that by 2008, there'll be more than 1.5 billion people in the world with at least one uh, medical, smartphone, uh, medical app on their smartphone. On its sixth birthday, the Huffington Post had more unique monthly visitors than the New York Times, which is 164 years old. Bleacher Report, a blog, uh, blog written by 2,000 sports fans, now has 22 million unique users each month, enough to rival CNN Sports. In 2014, Associated Press started to use algorithms to computerize the production of financial uh, of, uh, earnings reports. And it was able to produce 15 times as many as when it relied upon traditional financial journalists alone. Each year in the legal world, 60 million disagreements arise online on eBay, and they're resolved without lawyers. And they're resolved using what's called an e-mediation platform. Again, bear in mind that 60 million disputes is 40 times the number of civil claims as are filed in the entire English and Welsh justice system. It's said that the best-known legal brand in the U.S. isn't a, a traditional law firm. It's LegalZoom.com, an online legal advice and, and document drafting service. 2014, the U.S. tax authorities received tax returns from 48 million Americans who used online tax preparation software like TurboTax rather than a traditional tax accountant. The British uh, Revenue Authorities, they have a system to detect fraud called Connect. It sifts through a billion pieces of data That's said to be more data than is held in the entire British Library. No mean feat, given the fact that the British Library has a copy of every single book ever published in the UK. 
in, in 2012, the architects Gramazia and Koller used a, a swarm of autonomous flying robots to build this structure out of 1,500 bricks. And a Dutch firm, a DUS architects, have begun to print and assemble a building made entirely of printed parts using a printer that's capable of printing objects three and a half meters tall. Accenture, the consulting firm, don't just employ consultants. They have 750 hospital nurses on staff. And Deloitte, which was founded as an audit practice 170 years ago, now has over 200,000 professionals and its own full-scale university uh, set in a 700,000-square-foot campus in Texas. So in Second Life, the uh, virtual online world where more than a million people control their own uh, avatars, their own digital representations of themselves, on a virtual island called Epiphany, uh, there's a thriving group of uh, Christians who have built this slightly gloomy-looking Anglican cathedral. Now, it holds daily worship services, a weekly Bible study class, and counseling services. And finally, in, in 2011, the Vatican, amidst some controversy, granted uh, the first digital imprimatur. And so uh, did, uh, an imprimatur is the official license that the Vatican, that the Catholic Church issues to religious texts. It granted it to this app called Confession. And it helps people prepare for confession. So it's got tools for tracking sin, and it's, <laughs> and it's got drop-down panels of options for contrition. And the, the, reason, the reason it was controversial, uh, it's quite interesting, the, the Vatican said, while this app, Confession, you can use it to help prepare for confession, it's no substitute for the real thing. And so we believe all these developments across the professions are related. You know, we think they reflect a transformation uh, that we've been studying together for the past five years. So what we tried to do was to look across the professions at all the resources and in light of the empirical research we undertook to see if we could identify a set of patterns that were common across the professions and some trends underneath each of these. So we, I'm not going to detain you this evening with each of the eight and each of the 30, just to give you an idea of our approach. So we saw there were eight patterns that we think are indeed common across the professions and under each of these uh, Fifteen trends, perhaps, are being exhibited in each profession. So we say if you want to get a flavor of what the future of any other given profession is, you look at the trends that are missing. Because if you put them together, you see this jigsaw coming into focus. And I just want to give you tonight a little bit of a flavor of uh, three of the trends. Uh, and these are fundamental, but they're just three of 30. First of all, there's the move from bespoke service. From the idea that the delivery of professional service is like painting on a blank canvas. It's like handcrafting, tailoring a new solution for each client or customer or patient afresh. We're seeing a move away from that towards the standardization and the systematization of professional service. And part of this is a rather unfortunate word we use, decomposition, where we're seeing professions break down, often very large-scale tasks, into smaller tasks. And when you look at the smaller tasks, many of them that transpires are actually quite administrative. They're process-based. They can be conducted by non-experts, in fact. But this idea of not treating professional work as a monolithic, indivisible lump of stuff, but actually breaking it down into more manageable components, we're seeing right across the professions. 
And also, and it follows from this, an appetite for the routinization of the more straightforward professional work. As people move from this notion that one handles professional work in a bespoke way, there's a real trend right across the professions towards this routinization. And all of this is really underpinned by technology. Uh, and we stress our book really is about the impact of technology on the professions. And to understand just how far we've come, I often refer people to 1996 when I wrote a book called The Future of Law. And around that time, and this will seem absurd now, but one of my running interests was in electronic mail, in email. And I said at the time that the dominant way that lawyers and clients would come to communicate in the future would indeed be by email. Now that sounds a fairly safe prediction today, doesn't it? At the time, senior officials in the Law Society of England and Wales said I shouldn't be allowed to speak in public. It's possibly true. They said I didn't understand confidentiality and security. They said in 1996 that I was bringing the legal profession into disrepute by suggesting that lawyers and clients would use email in the future. But when you look at what's happening in technology today, the idea of email in 1996 seems positively mild. And in trying to make sense of technology, we identify four related factors. And I can't delve into them again in detail. What we're trying to do today is give you an overview, a sense of our, our broad trajectory of argument. But what we suggest is that to understand technology, in the first instance, you need to understand the exponential growth of the underpinning systems and techniques, whether it be processing power, data storage capacity, bandwidth. We're seeing this explosive growth under all of these headings. And this leads us, when one looks at the software and the apps and so forth, to see that machines are becoming increasingly capable. Almost on a daily basis, it seems there are tasks that we used to think only human beings could undertake, now systems and machines are taking on. Not only are they becoming increasingly capable, they're becoming increasingly pervasive. And I'm not simply meaning the smartphones or the tablets. We're moving into a new generation where chips and circuits are embedded, not just in our clothes and all our physical objects, but even ingested into our bodies as well. And as human beings, finally, we're becoming increasingly connected by a whole bundle of systems, not least the full range of social media. So if you look at uh, one in particular, increasingly capable, so we're digging down at one level here, uh, we unpack that into four sub-trends. One is the whole idea of big data, that a byproduct of our use of the internet and use of technology is huge quantities of data that when analyzed can actually yield remarkable patterns and insights. Statistical performance of courts, for example, one of my favorite illustrations. There's now a system in the West Coast of the United States that can predict the outcome of patent decisions more accurately than any human lawyer. It knows nothing about the law, but what it has is a statistical model essentially a large body of data, about 100,000 past cases, and it can predict how the court will behave. We're seeing the same in data science being used in medicine. Some say that data science will trump medical science. We have this huge burgeoning bodies of information that when analyzed using emerging techniques can yield observations, patterns, insights that as human beings we cannot undertake or, or deliver ourselves. And then there's problem solving, the example so many people choose, and we do too, is IBM's Watson. That's a system that in 2011, a computer system that appeared in a live episode of a quiz show in the United States called Jeopardy. And it beat the two best ever human Jeopardy champions. 
That is a computer system, ladies and gentlemen, and pause to think about this for a second, that can answer questions about anything in our world more accurately and more rapidly than the best human beings. We're moving into an era, and this was four years ago, where question and answer systems with com- uh, that deliver in a whole bundle of different disciplines will actually be commonplace. And then there's a whole area called effective computing, more of which in a second. And finally, there's robotics. And where it's hard to look at a newspaper or a journal today where there's not reference to autonomous machines and self-driving cars and prosthetic limbs and uh, digital surgery and so forth. But let's just go back and dip down even further into the whole idea of effective computing. This is an emerging field, computers that can both detect and express human emotions. Computers now, more accurately than any human being, can now look at a facial expression and tell whether or not a grin is genuine or fake. A machine can look at your face and tell whether or not you're angry, sad, disgusted, bored. By 2020, your iPhone will know what kind of mood you're in. You'll receive little hugs in your jacket when someone there's a like on Facebook and so forth. We're interacting with our machines in ways... I'm not seeing these computers empathize and feel and emote like human beings, but we're having reactions from our machines that give us comfort, that express emotions, and more importantly, can detect our emotions. And we're becoming increasingly connected. Just to give a flavor of social media in the professional field, we're used to open systems, but actually there's a number of closed systems, ceremony medicine, architect and architecture, Edmodo and education, legal and law. These are systems where professionals, no clients or customers or consumers or patients, professionals come online and share their daily experience and their issues and their research and their experiments, their findings and so forth. Closed social networks, greatly enhancing the performance of the professions. And then another kind of social network where recipients of professional service can share their experience of indeed being recipients, whether it be religiously observed people using Pathos or patients using patients like me, 3D warehouse and architecture, TurboTax and tax. We're finding a new way that human beings can gain insight to problems is not necessarily by consulting the leading experts, but by engaging with people like them who have been the recipients of professional service or have sorted out problems themselves. And then this whole idea of crowdsourcing where actually for very large problems, where small organizations or individuals can't take them on themselves, you can pull in massive resource by reaching out to many individuals who are on these networks. Art Bazaar and Architecture, Crowd Med and Medicine, for example. And there's the idea, too, not so much saying can we draw in a huge team to collaborate, but perhaps we can put ideas out there or challenges out there and groups can compete for the best ideas. So this idea of crowdsourcing and online competition, it's changing the way we resource professional work. And so when you think for a second about what it is that human professionals do, they have cognitive skills, solve problems, offer advice, reason. They have manual skills, psychomotor or physical skills, emotional skills, they can both detect and express emotions. And of course, human beings have a moral capacity as well. And our conclusions are that we're seeing machines, increasingly capable machines, taking on more and more cognitive tasks, more and more manual tasks, and indeed, it seems, taking on some of the emotional tasks too. As for moral tasks, I want to return to that slightly later, so hold that thought. Another way of looking at all of this, a model we developed, 
we talk about the evolution of professional service, and we hinted at this earlier when I talked about the move away from bespoke service. So you can also regard this as a move away from professionals going about their business as a form of craft, where they come instead to standardize, perhaps in terms of process, checklist, procedure manuals, perhaps in terms of substance, standard form content. They go even further, professionals now, workflow systems for high volume, fairly similar kinds of work, automatic generation of advice and documents. And all of that's within professional organizations, within firms and schools and hospitals. And then there's a terribly important phenomenon. And we'll all, we're all familiar with this in a way. This is the externalization. When professionals have systematized their knowledge, their ideas, their experience internally, the natural next step, of course, in the internet society is to externalize it, to make it available. And what we're seeing is professionals making it available in three ways. In the first instance, commercial opportunity arises. Why not make content, professional content, legal advice, tax advice, business advice, available as a chargeable online service? At the same time, we're seeing the voluntary sector and government saying that content, useful content that helps people's lives can be made available online on a non-chargeable basis. And then thirdly, and this for us has great attractions, the idea of a commons, that actually the ownership and the control of this content is no longer in the hands of the professions or of governments or of charitable organizations. In the spirit of a very advanced Wikipedia, it's held in common for all of us. Three different ways of owning and controlling externalized professional expertise. And again, towards the end, I just want to make an observation about this and give a hint where we think our world should be moving. We call this move from left to right. When I say we in the professional services community generally, we roughly call this, and slightly unhelpfully, the commoditization of professional service. What fascinates us, though, is one particular technology. And it's hard to pin it down as one set of systems that's perhaps an approach, but it's artificial intelligence. And we like to think there has been a first wave of AI. Now, I want to take you back to 1986. I wrote my doctorate in AI and law in the 80s. And from 86 to 88, with a leading legal expert, I developed a system. I have to explain myself here. Uh, at the time, I want to assure you, that was a cool, well-designed slide. It, I, I know it looks faintly absurd today, but that was the best that was an offer at the time. Uh, we developed this system in a very complex area of, of law, relating to the law of limitation, a corner of that area of law called latent damage law. And my friend Philip Capper is now a, a partner in a major law firm. Uh, at the time, he was chairman of the law faculty in Oxford. And basically, what we did is we or I, because I was the knowledge engineer, I mined the jewels from his head, organized it, and put it into two floppy disks. And this was in an era where floppy disks genuinely were floppy, five and a quarter inch floppy disks. Just to give you a flavor of what we're up against, section two of this act shall not apply to an action to which this section applies. Seriously, that's a piece <laughs> of law that guides human beings and society. So what we had to do was walk through this treacle analyze the legislation, all the case law that clarified the legislation, the good practice as well of sensible lawyers in the area, and essentially we put together a massive decision tree. Uh, it asked questions, the contents uh, insignificant for current purposes, but a lot of it was yes or no. You're pruning the tree. You're helping someone navigate through a complex area of law, sometimes pull-down menus. The actual system looked more like this. This is a fraction of the system. More than 2 million paths through this system that we charted, and this was in the mid-'80s. 
this was in law. At the same time, there were people working in medicine, others, including me, towards the end of the 80s, working in tax and audit and consulting as well. And this was AI, its first wave, and we called them expert systems. But the trouble with them was they were costly to build and maintain. And there was also little incentive for many professionals to invest in these systems because business was quite good. People were charging by the hour. Why would you want to reduce, as our system reduced a legal problem-solving task from many hours to many minutes, why would you want to do that if your clients weren't clamoring for lower costs and your competitors weren't either? And the other thing was, and to some extent we believe this killed the first wave of AI, the web came along in the early 90s. And of course it wasn't providing diagnostic problem-solving solutions, but it was an incredibly intuitive, easy way to make content and guidance and advice available at people's fingertips. And not only that, we were working at the time on little self-contained islands, standalone personal computers. Suddenly everyone was networked. So we get all, most of us in the world of legal technology, we get excited, far more excited what we might do in the web. And so what followed then was the AI winter when not much happened. 1997 was definitive. Gary Kasparov, the world chess champion, was beaten by IBM's deep blue computer system. In the 80s, when we thought about this, we thought that wasn't possible. And the reason we thought that wasn't possible is extremely significant. We thought it wasn't possible because our mindset in building systems in the 80s was the only way you could get a computer to perform at the level of a human expert was somehow to understand and model how the human expert worked, put it into a decision tree, and make that available. But the problem with human experts, and Kasparov was a great example as a, as a world chess champion, but right across the professions, most experts say they don't really know how they come to the conclusions. They just say, oh, it's, it's my experience, it's intuition, it's gut reaction, it's knee-jerk, and so forth. And so if you can't model it, how on earth could we develop a system that could outperform the best experts? Well, what we hadn't banked on was the exponential uh, increase in processing power. And by the time Kasparov played Deep Blue, Deep Blue could see 300 million different moves a second. And even a good day, Kasparov could only juggle about 100 moves in his head. So he was blown out of the water by brute force computing. It wasn't the system had, was more genius than him, had greater imagination or strategic insight. It was raw processing power. And the key observation, I think, here, made by Patrick Winston, one of the, the great academics in artificial intelligence, is there are lots of ways of being smart that aren't like us. And this is a vital point. We tend to be terribly human-oriented when we're thinking of making systems that perform at a high standard. And this leads to something that we believe is a, a crucial part of our book. We call it the AI fallacy. And it's this. It's the mistaken assumption, and it's made by leading academics, by leading commentators, the assumption that the only way to develop systems that perform tasks at the level of experts or higher is to replicate the thinking processes of human specialists. And that's simply mistaken. Let me give you an example. Very often when you say to someone about our book or our thesis, they'll say, but of course, a computer system, how, how can a computer system express or exhibit judgment? And that's what being a human expert is all about. Fair enough? Well, our response to that is, that's the wrong question. The right question to ask is, to what problem is judgment the solution? Why do we call upon our human experts to exercise judgment? Why do we need judgment? And we need judgment because of uncertainty. We go to experts because the facts, the details, the knowledge are unclear. And they draw upon their experience to manage this uncertainty. And we call this their judgment based on experience. But of course, computer systems are emerging at wonderful at managing uncertainty. Because they don't draw on experience of maybe a thousand patients 
or 500 clients, they can draw on the experience of 100 million. Computers are better very often than human beings at handling uncertainty. So, the que- so we have to keep asking, to what problem is judgment or whatever phenomenon we think is unique to the human expert, to what problem is that the solution? Can machines think is a question that's often asked. We love this question philosophically, but we love also the answer. This was Watson that John Searle, a great philosopher, put forward in an op-ed the day after Watson beat the two human experts on Jeopardy. He said, Watson doesn't know it won on Jeopardy. Isn't that perfect? It didn't go down to the pub to celebrate. It didn't tell his friends how it felt. It outperformed. And this for us is vital because what we're seeing is the emergence of increasingly capable, non-thinking machines. They're not like us, but they're outpowering us. They're outperforming us. And we call this the second wave of AI. And it has profound implications for the future of jobs. So these dramatic developments in technology and AI that my dad just uh, set out lead people to ask two related questions. The first is, will there be any jobs for professionals left to do? And the second is, what is it that humans can do that machines can't? And so I want to look at each of these in turn. So first, will there be any jobs left? Well, the answer to this largely depends on timescales. You know, in the medium run, we think that technology will replace a lot of traditional professional roles but it will also give rise to a new set of roles. Uh, Many of these roles, typically, uh, professionals don't recognize the names of, and many of them won't be performed by traditional professionals at all. So take knowledge engineers, for example. When my dad in the 80s was building that system, uh, he was uh, acting as a a knowledge engineer, sitting down with a leading legal expert, mining the jewels from this expert's head and, and making them available in a system that other people can engage with. And so we think that it will, technology will lead to the rise of lots of, these, uh, lots of these new roles. But the longer term is very different, and, and, and that's what I want to turn to now. And broadly, there are two schools of thought here. There's the optimists, and there's the pessimists. And the pessimists say, no, you know, there aren't going to be enough jobs for human professionals to do. Machines are becoming increasingly capable, They're able to perform more and more types of tasks, and so there'll be fewer tasks left for people to do. The optimists, on the other hand, say, yes, of course there's going to be more jobs for human beings to do. There is work today that only humans can do, and new work will arise in the future, perhaps work that today we can't even conceive of, and that will also be for humans to do. And they make a particular criticism here of the pessimists. They say that the pessimists are committing the lump of labor fallacy, this false belief that there exists some lump of work to be divided up between people and machines. So as machines do more of the work, people do less. And they say, no, that's not true. Uh, As the economy grows, that lump gets bigger. There's new work created. And they also make the observation that the optimal future might involve humans and machines working together, each bringing their own distinctive uh, comparative advantage. So who's right? One of the difficulties here when we talk about the future of work is that we tend to talk about the different jobs that people do. 
So in the professions, we talk about lawyers, we talk about teachers, we talk about doctors, and so on. But the term job isn't entirely illuminating. You know, a job isn't an indivisible, monolithic lump of work. Instead, to think clearly about the future of work, we have to ask, what is it people actually do in their jobs? You know, what tasks make up their job? So just by way of example, you know, the sort of tasks that a nurse does today are very different from the sort of tasks that a nurse would have done 25 years ago. Now, a nurse 25 years ago, being a nurse might have involved bedpans and bedside conversation, whereas today nurses can prescribe certain types of medication and even perform minor surgery. So the same job, title, nurse, but very, very different composite tasks. So why does this matter for thinking about the future of work? Well, a few weeks ago, the, the Economist reviewed our book, and it was a positive review, otherwise I wouldn't have mentioned it. And, but what was so interesting about the piece was that accompanying it was this great cartoon of Professor Dr. Robot QC. And I think there's... There's a sense in a lot of the commentary and writing on the future of work that one day a doctor or a teacher or a lawyer or accountant and so on is going to turn up at work and find Professor Dr. Robot QC or one of his relatives sitting in their chair. You know, the, their job will have been replaced by a robot. And that, and that simply isn't how, how things are playing out or, or will play out. So again, by way of example, suppose a new technology is invented that computerizes a particular task that, that, uh, that a doctor does. So here, this is a remote monitoring system that reduces the need for an in-person checkup with a doctor. You know, clearly something has changed in the, the job of a doctor, but to say that the job of the doctor has been replaced would be to overstate the case. You know, what's happened here is that you know, the job that the doctor does has changed. You know, she may spend less time doing in-person medical checkups, but she may spend more time late, uh, reading the, the latest research. And it's, it's by, by thinking about the tasks that make up jobs that we can think more coherently about how technology affects work. And the problem with the, looking at jobs is that it masks these deeper underlying changes in the tasks that people are doing. So to return to our optimists and pessimists, we can now be more precise. The optimists think there will always be a sufficiency of tasks for human professionals to do, whereas the pessimists say no, there won't be sufficient tasks for human professionals to do. And of course, when there aren't enough tasks for humans to do, it no longer makes sense to talk about the job under which all those tasks are bundled together. But only then does it make sense to say that the job has in some sense been replaced. So what do we think? Well, both are right and wrong. You know, the pessimists are right to recognize that machines are becoming increasingly capable, but they're wrong to ignore the fact that there's likely uh, to be new tasks to be done in the future. Optimists are right to recognize there will be new tasks to be done in the future, but they're wrong to think that people will be better placed than machines to perform those tasks. Increasingly capable existing tasks, but there may be new tasks to be done in the future, new tasks to be done in the future, but they're wrong to think that people will be necessarily best placed to perform them. So what's our conclusion? Well, yes, machines will become increasingly capable. Yes, they'll take on more and more of today's tasks. Yes, no doubt new tasks will emerge, but it's likely that machines will take on these as well. And, and that's often the reaction, which is laughter, but there's a very serious point here. Um, just before coming to that, you know, we find it, given this, hard to avoid the conclusion there'll be a steady decline in the demand for traditional human professionals in the long run. But the, the, the serious point is this, which is you know, we're not challenging the, 
assumption that necessarily there'll be more work to be done in the future, that lump of labor fallacy we spoke about before. But what we are challenging is this assumption that necessarily people rather than machines will be best placed to perform these new tasks. So the, the best and brightest human professionals will last the longest. Those who either can perform tasks that machines can't perform or that machines ought not to perform. And that moral question is something that my, my dad will come back to in a moment. But there won't be enough of these tasks to, comp- uh, to keep armies of traditional professionals in employment. But surely, you know, but surely there must be some tasks that machines can never do even in the long run. And this goes to the heart of the second question that, we, uh, that, that I set out at the start. You know, what is it that machines... Uh, what is it that humans can do that machines cannot? And in saying, but surely there must be some task that machines can never do, uh, we, we say that professionals have a, and it's typically professionals who say it, professionals have a Rubik's Cube conception of the capability of machines. So on, on the screen here, uh, the, the man on your uh, right built this machine out of Lego and his smartphone at his kitchen table. Uh, it's capable of solving a Rubik's Cube in, in 3.4 seconds, which is about uh, a second faster as of last week than the... As of last week than the uh, but it's still a second faster than the leading uh, human Rubik's Cube uh, player. And professionals aren't surprised by this capability of machines. You know, yes, this is a manually dexterous task, it's complex, but ultimately it's rules-based, it's logical, it's self-contained. It's what we might call a routine task. And what many professionals say is that they do far more than just perform routine tasks. You know, they perform tasks that rely upon creativity, upon judgment, upon empathy. You know, these are things that are non-routine, and surely machines can't perform these And so it's at this point, again, we usually see a collective relaxation of the shoulders of professionals pointing to the screen saying, yes, that's me. I perform non-routine tasks, but not so fast. And and, and we think there are two important mistakes being made here. Uh, The first relates to the decomposition of work that uh, my dad spoke about at the start. You know, our research and our experience suggest that when you take professional work and break it down into its composite uh, tasks, you know, it transpires that most of these tasks are routine rather than non-routine. Not everything that a professional does, and in cases not very much, depends upon creativity, judgment, and empathy. The second mistake, though, relates to the AI fallacy, and and this is probably the most important. It's to commit the AI fallacy that was discussed before to assume that these non-routine tasks as well can't be performed by machines. The temptation is to say that because computers can't think, they can't be uh, creative. Because uh, computers can't feel, they can't be empathetic. And the the mistake here is to fail to notice that many of these machines can perform tasks that might require creativity and empathy from a human being, but they perform those tasks in a very, very different way. In an unhuman way. So this line of thinking about machines taking on professional tasks prompts a more fundamental question. When we began the book in 2010, our preoccupation was with the future of uh, the current professions. But it led led us to ask a more fundamental question about how we produce and how we share expertise in society. That's what we look at now. 
it wasn't that we changed course in the middle of the book. It's just as one, as one writes and thinks, you realize, and this is the excitement for those of you who've written a book, that you're actually uncovering something interesting. You're exploring a new dimension of the issue. So as Daniel said, it wasn't so much now looking at what's the future of the professions. It was asking this deeper question, how do we produce and distribute practical expertise in society? And the answer in the print-based industrial society, as Daniel said earlier, was the traditional model of the professions. That's how we do it. If you have limited understanding and you need help in an important area of your life, your health, your education, your business, your entitlements, you go to a professional. But what we've developed and identified is six alternative models for the production and distribution of expertise in society. Now, this really is several lectures in its own right. We just want to give you a flavor. You can glance and hopefully are impelled to buy our book when you see this. <laughs> There's so much up there. But this is to, to give you a flavor, the, the notion that in the future, everyone in this room, and I think it's a, a fairly young audience, will be taking on a professional role on the first model of the print-based industrial society seems to us to be unlikely. So what you want to do in planning your career is you immerse yourself in the alternative models and build your skills and talents accordingly. We want to just to close very briefly on a couple of moral issues. And we close the book by asking the question, what future should we want? And there's really two questions we ask. One is, what tasks ought not to be handled by machines? Our argument is that more and more tasks will be taken or could be taken on by machines. But it occurs to us when you think of medicine, for example, do we want a computer system making the decision to turn off a life support system? Do we want a computer system passing a life sentence in a courtroom? What kinds of tasks do we feel uncomfortable now and potentially forever in handing over to machines? We don't answer that question. We simply identify a deep unease that many of us have with the idea that the buck stops at a computer rather than a human being. And what we call for in the book is government-led public debate on this issue. We think it's as important as the debate in the early 80s on IVF and test tube babies, where there's clearly a whole set of moral issues, pressing ethical questions arising from a new set of emerging technologies. We're at the same crossroads today. These machines are not just becoming increasingly capable, they're doing so rather rapidly. So now is the time for us to reflect at least in relation to ethical issues, what the division of labor between human beings and machines should be. In a way, the final question is as profound. Who should own and control, control tomorrow's practical expertise? As Daniel said at the outset, the gatekeepers up until now, and certainly since the middle of the 19th century, have been the professionals themselves. Professionals have both owned and controlled the distribution of expertise. Mm -hmm. One of our apprehensions, our concerns, is in the internet world that some major technology supplier, whether it be a search engine provider, a database a facility, that those who store and control and manage our access to information could become the new gatekeepers. And so while we're excited about what we call the liberation of practical expertise, a future in which medical knowledge, legal insight, superb education, business know-how, could all be made freely available or at very low cost right across the seven billion of us, we have to be cautious, surely, that we don't put through technology 
new gatekeepers in place. So our inclination, insofar as is feasible, and we discuss the question of feasibility in the book, is that we should indeed make practical expertise available on a commons basis. We should resist wherever possible handing over this practical expertise to the market on the one hand or to government on the other. This is a shared resource. It's a wonderful resource. We look forward to a world where people do have ready access to this kind of content, this kind of guidance. So that's why we argue that it should be the people in a commons, in the spirit, but it's far more advanced, of a Wikipedia that should own and control tomorrow's practical expertise. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, while you collect your thoughts and think about insightful questions to challenge our guest tonight with, I uh, have a small commercial break. So, um, first, a practical message that this is recorded. So, whatever you say is recorded. It may or may not be published, but it is recorded. Um, and therefore, it could be used in evidence against you. Uh, it almost certainly will. Um, and the second thing is that, uh, that this event is arranged by uh, Department of Management where uh, I reside. My name is Dr. Carsten Sorensen. Uh, I've been here for 16 years. Uh, I've seen some of you before. It's a lovely place to work. Uh, we have people like this come by, and we uh, actively do research in digital innovation. So there's a couple of my colleagues are here. Uh, Leslie Wilcox, wave and smile, and Susan Scott, and uh, maybe even Crescentia Guru is here somewhere. No? Um, but we do uh, actively research this, and so it's a very important issue for us to discuss, and that's, that's why we're really happy uh, that you are here this evening. Um, and again, I want to remind you, if you go on uh, hashtag LSE Suskind, in one word, singular Suskind, not Suskins, then you uh, can contribute to the Twitter uh, hailstorm, uh, but also find exclusive content uh, about my research and about research of my colleagues, should you be interested. With that, the floor is open. Who wants to start? Have we got, yeah, so we've got a gentleman in the front there. Um, my name's Callum Chase. Thank you for a great presentation. Um, very clear-eyed. Do you widen your gaze to the economy as a whole? And if so, do you have any views on whether we're going to need a universal basic income and how we avoid the problem of society fracturing into two or more species, the gods and the useless? That's one for Daniel. <laughs> this is how we divide labour up here. I, th I think there, there is a very important... So when you step up, of course, a lot of the things we're talking about in the professions apply equally well uh, in not just the eight professions that we look at in the book, but in the broader economy. Uh, the most important thing to take is if it is the case that uh, machines are becoming increasingly capable and able to perform more and more types of tasks, uh, if, you, if you imagine the economy as a a giant pie, and a slice of that pie goes to people who sell their uh, labor as a wage, and the other part of the pie goes to people who earn uh, rent on their capital on these machines and systems. If it's the case that these machines are becoming increasingly capable and able to do more and more and taking up a larger and larger slice of this 
of this pie. Uh, the question of who owns and controls um, these new systems and machines is, is incredibly important. Um, you know, there are a lot of our kind of public policy interest is in the labour market, and that and that's right. And we spend a lot of time thinking about how we can improve mobility in the labour market. But the question of you know, capital and these new types of capital, uh, capital in the 21st century that looks very different to the sort of capital that existed in the 20th and 19th century. The question of who owns and controls that is incredibly important. So I think if there's, if there's one thing to take from the book to the wider economy, it's, it's, it's that idea and it's that final question that my dad, uh, that my dad um, looked at. I mean, we, as, just as we don't have an answer to the question of uh, what types of tasks ought not to be done by machines, and that's a question that ought to be, uh, we ought to have a public debate about. Similarly, I think that second question, it's because of its moral dimension, because uh, of its kind of normative flavor, it's something that we need to have. It's, it, it's not for us to sit and say this is how it ought to be. It's something we all need to talk about and think about. It's a new question of political theory. Yeah. Yes, I think we had all the way in the back row, and after that we have in the red jumper as number two. Have you got you got two microphones? So you should, yeah. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Keith Postler, latterly of LSE, I'm teaching um, statistics. Um, would you agree that um, what makes humans um, unique is that they can do what? machines can't do, and that is take initiative. It's a leading question in many ways. Um, I'm not sure I would want to... This almost becomes a, defini a definitional issue. Uh, it may well be that you're correct. Um, and we... Our thesis, though, again, I have to say, is that we're not... We're interested in the way in which machines can outperform human beings. Now, if you're suggesting that only human beings and not machines can take initiative, uh, I, I think we'd want to challenge that. I think what we would say is that uh, the performance in human beings that we call initiative can probably be delivered, that the outcomes from human beings' initiative could probably be delivered by machines in different ways. And so, again, in terms of the structure of the thinking, if you think initiative in human beings is a good thing, which we generally do, uh, we ask the kind of question, to what challenge, to what problem is it that, human, that, that initiative is the solution. And once you identify why it is that we require people to show initiative to solve different categories of problems and so forth, uh, we then ask the question, can, human, can machines solve these categories of problems in different ways? If you're interested in the unique characteristics of human beings, um, and that might be a philosophical or it might be a biological question, we can have a discussion uh, about that. But it, our interests are rather more limited. We're saying that we have a problem in society, and that is people have got limited understanding. Traditionally, human beings have sorted that out. And actually, it turns out machines can now do a, a good job of, of many of these tasks, and increasingly more and more of these tasks. And although they don't do it in the same way as human beings, and although, for example, they don't show initiative, they can deliver the goods by operating in entirely different ways. Um, so... We can enjoy the way in which human beings show initiative and can indeed say that machines will never be able to show initiative in that way, 
But it may still be the case that machines can outperform human beings at undertaking the kinds of tasks for which human initiative is currently the solution. Uh, hi, my name is Rohit. I'm a master's student here at the uh, LSE. Um, my question is regarding wages and salaries. Uh, and it's related kind of uh, just in some way in the first question. Uh, you mentioned that at least in the medium term there would be uh, new kinds of tasks that will be created. So my question is, are, do these tasks uh, demand skills that are uh, widely available or uh, are they going to uh, displace uh, uh, workers to the extent that it becomes highly specialized? One of the questions I often ask is, what are we training young professionals to become? And I don't know, again, many people training to be professionals in the room today. My fear, and this is a generic criticism of universities worldwide, if I may, is that we're training very often in our universities, people to become 20th century rather than 21st century professionals. Because if you look at that list that Daniel talked through of these various skills to meet your question, very few of them do we find are on the curriculum of modern universities. Now, if you speak, as we do, to leading professional services firms, they're saying that the, the graduates who come through are bright as anything, well-educated and given disciplines, but actually not ready at all to undertake the kinds of tasks for which they'll be called to, to operate in, 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 the, in the coming years. And so it's a huge challenge, I think, that we move. I'm not for a second suggesting that we, in so many areas of law, for example, move, from, move away from fundamental uh, subjects like constitutional law or tort law and medicine, and we move away from studying anatomy and physiology. But I am saying, and I think we're both saying, there's a whole new skill set out there, and it's a skill set that is not actually being introduced to students at undergraduate and degraduate level. Just now, what's happening in most of these areas is they're actually being learned on the job. By, actually, not just by, by young professionals, but by older professionals as well. So I think you lay down a challenge for us that uh, I don't think we're yet preparing ourselves adequately for the new realm, what we're calling the medium term. And to be honest, I think there's going to be a distinction between those countries who recognize that these talents are needed and those who don't. Yes, so we have on the first row here on the balcony, and uh, while we get the microphone, I just want to say if you do a, a master's degree in department of management, you will learn this, in, in, particular, in particular if you do the one in digital innovation. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm sure LSE is, of course, the, the, the exception. exception, yes. Yes, <laughs> yes because you're It's rather ungracious of me not to anticipate that. <laughs> okay. Uh, hi there, I'm Shady Kibati. I just wanted to ask, so incre increasingly you find the number of economists arguing that inequality is result resulting um, from what they call skills-based technology change, and they say that inequality will continue changing, in, um, like causing that change, increasingly speaking about the top 1%. So if, 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 if the increase in technology keeps on um, increases that disparity in terms of inequality, where do you see that that would sort of stop? Or would you just continue so, forever? So, uh, two, two things to say. One is that one of the most interesting things about technological change in the past, past 15 years, particularly the first, the first decade of this century, um, is that it hasn't... Um, that, that's, that skills bias technological change thesis doesn't explain everything. And, uh, the, if you look at 
it's very interesting. If you line up all the occupations that exist from you know, low skill to medium skill to high skill and look at growth across these different occupations, what you see is, as you said, a lot of growth in the high skilled, a lot of growth actually in the low skilled as well, and where there isn't growth is in the middle. And what economists call this is they say the labor market has polarized. You get this, sort of, this U-shape. Um, so I, I, I challenge that, that link between technology necessarily being skills-biased. Actually, it seems to be... Um, it, it, uh, that doesn't seem to, to hold. But I, just to, to come back to the, the, the first question, um, clearly the question about technology in the labor market is an incredibly important one. Um, but there is another very important question, which isn't about the labor market. It's about capital, and it's about ownership and control of capital. And if you, if you, if you I, th I think, and, and to an extent, this is what the, the, the Thomas Piketty's book, the uh, French economist who wrote book Capital, uh, was, was saying that capital was becoming increasingly important. And as a driver of inequality, the ownership and control of capital is becoming increasingly important. Uh, and given all these new types of capital, new systems and machines, new types of property, intellectual property, um, question of who owns and controls these become very, very important. That's not a labor market question. That's a, that's a capital question. And it's important that those questions about the ownership and control of capital are treated with just as much uh, kind of focus as... Uh, the labour market questions. It is interesting, I think, both in the reviews of the book and uh, in public discussion, the focus tends to be on the impact in the labour market, and I, we really do understand that. But as central to our thesis is the notion that I was trying to press at the end, that as never before, it might be possible for most of humanity to have at their fingertips knowledge and expertise that will allow people to live a far happier and healthier life. And I understand that the 10% of people in the world who are involved in the professions feel terribly anxious about their careers, but we should also, there should be a certain amount of excitement at the prospect of being involved in this liberation of expertise, this sharing of expertise, this notion that inex the expertise is so unevenly distributed around our world is deeply concerning. So I, I do accept that if you're a doctor or a lawyer or studying to be uh, an accountant or a teacher, you'll be wondering, am I making the right choice in life? But I, anticipating the kinds of questions people often ask, they say, should I still be a doctor? Should I still be a lawyer? So my answer to, 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 to that question is, if you're interested in working, say, in law, as your uncle might have done in the last century, if interested in Rumpel or John Grisham, uh, that's for legal practice. I would say that form is disappearing. If you're interested in proving access to justice, in helping people understand and enforce their entitlements in new ways in the 21st century, yes, because you not only will be studying law, you're going to be one of the architects of change. If you want to be a doctor because you want to go into general practice or hospital medicine as you see today, I think that's, that's misguided. But if you're interested in proving the way that we can enhance people's health in society and be part of the innovation, this wave, again, of architects who are changing the way that we improve health, of course go into medicine. It just so happens, and I think it's a, a wonderful gift for everyone in this room, we're born at a time of greater technological change 
than humanity has ever seen. It's happening in our watch. We just happen to be born at this time. And you can either say, gosh, it's dreadful that our old jobs are under threat, or say, let's actually be part of a movement that increases all our health and welfare through this kind of technology. It's not to say there aren't dangers or problems, but the almost incessant focus on what it means for my job, it seems to me, is often missing the bigger and more exciting point. Yeah. So I'm going to take one more upstairs. So there's uh, a lady there with a hand up. It's, uh, that's the sign. And also say, of course, that the turkeys don't vote for Christmas. And if you look at the London black cab drivers who for 420 years have been driving the streets of London, they are in a bit of a sticky situation now. But there's a, there's a, sorry, just to come on to that, I mean, there's a serious, there is a serious point here, which is that they're um, not to say that getting from different parts of London, you know, not to say that a good transport system isn't important, but you know, the professions are responsible for some of the most important functions in society. You know, they are responsible for keeping us in good health, they're responsible for educating us, they're responsible for making sure our buildings don't fall down. Um, and that the importance of the work that they do means we should pay you know, disproportionate attention to the possibilities of sharing that sort of expertise more widely in society. Um, so while you know, I think the Uber comparison is, um, you know, there are kind of echoes of it, I think in the case of the professions, the argument that we ought to focus on new ways to produce and share expertise in society just becomes you know, far, more, far more important. Okay. Um, my name is Josie McIntosh, and I'm studying to be a lawyer. But um, what I think is actually the most worrying to me is this idea of who's going to be the gatekeeper. Um, and in particular, you mentioned you don't want it to be um, you know, given up to, to, to the market or to the government. Um, and it seems to me that one, the government and um, also the UN or any, any kind of international body is way behind. The, the, the Human Rights Council has um, only a couple of years ago looked at digital privacy. Um, we see that governments don't operate um, with much technology or, or high technology at all. Um, and then looking at the corporate sector, um, even in academic institutions like Oxford, where you've got DeepMind, um, Google has now come in and, and done that. And um, somebody called Evgeny Morozov, for example, has talked a lot about um, the, 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 these um, big companies like Google or Facebook's aspirations to becoming, in a way, a new welfare state because they're providing a lot of what governments should be providing. Um, so I was wondering, how do we actually um, ensure that we can move towards more of a commons-based approach um, and also update with the government and keep in check corporations in this case? Thank you. I'm not sure I actually know the answer. I mean, what you're asking is a question of practical politics, and we're quite clear in our book that uh, it's, in a way, um, it's, it's almost too ambitious that it is because we're, tr we're, we're tr covering so many professions, we're covering technology and so forth. So we're really not here to say we've got all the answers. In, in many ways, uh, I think what you've laid down very clearly is the, the problem of practical politics to which our book gives rise. And we're hoping, uh, in, a, in a modest way, that there'll be increasing public debate, indeed movements uh, of enthusiasm for this kind of idea. We're hoping that, and you're seeing early signs, as I mentioned, of social networks, for example, uh, patients like me, uh, the, the equivalent where uh, people can come and share their experiences as recipients of service. We're, we're hoping that more of these, these communities will thrive. But it, the answer, in many ways, uh, will, will 
will depend on our political systems and the ability to embrace what we're suggesting as a preferred approach to sharing expertise uh, to, to the alternatives. So we'll need social arguments, we'll need economic arguments, we'll need technological arguments. There's a lot of work to, to be done. So I, I can't say in any simple way, here's the answer. What we're really doing is saying we prefer we move in that direction. For those of you listening in the podcast, I'm pointing out to the right uh, rather than over there. I'm pointing to the left. But it's a general uh, sense of overall thrust and direction we're giving tonight rather than say, here's how we actually create a commons of practical expertise. What we, I mean, our dream would be that a few of you go away and you write doctorates on this and you, you join organizations and, and you move towards this vision we have. Oh, one <clears throat> one pr- practical point is that I think if, if, our, if, our, if the aim is to make put all practical expertise in a comment. You know, to te- I, think, um, I think we'll be frustrated by that. And, and one of the, uh, I think we'll be frustrated in the kind of ambitions. Um, one, one of the points about that, that diagram that my dad uh, showed in his lecture, showed in, the, showed in the talk about how the nature of professional work is changing is that that's a story about tasks. It's about how different parts of professional work, you know, different parts of professional work are located at different points on that journey. And it may be that some things we can put in a commons, but it may be that other things it's just not feasible. Uh, and we have a conversation about feasibility and the need for some exclusivity, the need perhaps for some types of practical expertise to be owned and controlled not by the commons but by, um, by institutions or by organisations because you know, there, are, there are simply... You know, often fixed costs, often upfront costs involved with the production of this, this expertise that simply can't be met in a commons. So we have to, um, I think we ha- there's a need to be nuanced about, the, I, th- I think that's right, a need to be nuanced about this ambition to, you know, it's, it's a direction of travel and we want as much as possible, but it's simply not feasible to put everything in a commons. I think that's and that troubled us when we were writing, we thought about this a lot, and there's, a, as Daniel says, a section on the feasibility, because people say, oh, that's all very well, but... Uh, how, who's going to be incentivized to provide this content? So we reflect on that in some detail. And, and we, we still remain optimistic that significant numbers of tasks and significant quantities of practical expertise can be made available in a way that would made, make a difference. Okay, so there's a lady here in a white jumper, and I'm going to take the, the gentleman who has a very long arm in the back there with a the pink shirt. He was early on, but he lost it. And then the third one I'm going to take is the guy who's still holding his hand up. And so you were going to take quite long as well. They, they were quite long, but not quite <laughs> as long. Uh, and uh, so, so you're going to pass the microphone on. Yeah. So hi, I'm Kimia. Um, I'm an LSC graduate, and I'm an aspiring lawyer. Um, so I look at the court system and I and um, and at law firms, which are the two sort of areas that I can go into, and it's all quite archaic at the moment. And um, and I'm actually quite excited by the changes that you're speaking of. Um, but I find it really difficult in a, quite a hierarchical space um, or industry to uh, convince those who have more power than me that something needs to change when they're looking to profit maximize and use the kind of old ways of working or in the case of courts, they still have to use paper. <laughs> she said the word paper with considerable derision. <laughs> I'm very disdainful of paper. Um, So my question, and I think it's probably more to Richard, um, is what kind of 
having spoken to so many different people, what do you think is the most effective way, strategically speaking, to advocate change? You asked this question at an interesting time because uh, some of you know that I've devoted my 34 years, or the last 34 years of my life, to trying to uh, help uh, computerize the court system and improve access to justice. And uh, as I said in Twitter the other day, you know, I, there was a day last week when the spending review, uh, I've been waiting for that day for 34 years, where uh, the, the government has now announced it's putting £700 million into the modernization, the digitization of the court system. Now, of course, it's a very complex project and there's much that can go wrong, but what's important relative to your question is the fact that that investment has been made. And uh, I've had a little role to play in this. I, I um, Earlier in the year, uh, I chaired a group that published a report on online dispute resolution. So we were asked uh, by the Civil Justice Council in this country to look at the ways in which low-value claims could be solved differently. If anyone in the room has a low-value claim, you know it takes many months to resolve. Um, the process, if you're not a lawyer, is unintelligible. It's pretty combative, and it's costly if you use lawyers. And so we uh, looked around the world and all sorts of ideas, and now it's not the place to go into in detail, but we came up with this idea of a three-tier online court. Um, what's been quite interesting is, in one way or another, I've been advocating that for uh, something like this for, for many years, but it only seemed the time was right now. We just happened to have uh, a, a combination of open-minded uh, judges and officials and politicians who are, who are keen in reform. But my own personal message to pass on is that you just need to keep plugging away and you, you just don't take no for an answer. I, I, have, I have literally, for the last 34 years, spent, spent all my time saying our justice system is antiquated. Uh, we're more information and document intensive than almost any other industry and sector. Why on earth can't we use technology? And, it, and it's, it's taken this long for the penny to drop. I think things might happen quite quickly now, so it's quite encouraging. And, you know, you're coming into the, you're coming into the sector at a time where there is great change. So you should be able, in one way or another, to be part of it. And, and you have a good 30 years to go yet, I'm sure. <laughs> so, yeah, so down there, and then the next microphone for the gentleman. Uh, hi, my name is Nuan. I'm an engineering student from Australia. Um, so my question is on a bit of a more philosophical and kind of emotional kind of level. And what I want to ask is, um, so you're saying that machines are slowly taking over human jobs and, you know, they're t slowly taking over the labor force. So my question is, on a, on a more broader scale, what becomes of the human race? So... What becomes of our existence on the planet? Like, you know, is our life going to become something like Wallace and Gromit? You know, are we going to have, like, machines doing everything for us? And could this potentially make us... What becomes of our sense of self and identity? You know, like, could we see a rise in depression in young people? Because, like, you know, they're finding that their careers, their future aspirations are being taken over by machines. Like, could this potentially hurt us emotionally and on a more psychological level? That's what I want to ask. I mean, it's a huge set of questions. You're asking what's the future of humanity in many ways. Uh, so in the three minutes available to me. Uh, um, it is interesting. I mean, we, we reflect on this a lot. There's a growing literature in this. And uh, uh, Nick Bostrom, for example, has written a fascinating book called Superintelligence. And he's a philosopher who's looked at this very question. He said, really, in a, in a way, let's not worry about timescales. At some stage, our machines are going to be way, way more intelligent than us. Now, what are the moral implications of this? I often quote, I think it was Marvin Minsky, one of the fathers of artificial intelligence, who said the next generation of machines will be so intelligent, we'll be lucky if they keep us around as household pets. And 
one can laugh a little bit, but it is not exclusively an issue of science fiction when you begin to talk about the kinds of technologies we've been discussing today. The, the quotation, I, I didn't go delve into detail though, but um, Ray Kurzweil, who, who I regard as a, a, a fascinating man, and over the years I've followed his, his work, which I think is, uh, I think he would call himself a futurist, over the last 30 years, and his predictions have often been fairly accurate. He predicts by 2050 the average desktop machine will have more processing power than all of humanity put together. So today, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the human brain apparently processes at the speed of 10 to the 17th, 10 to the 18th calculations per second. And if you see this doubling every two years, according to Moore's law, the exponential growth in, in processing power, at least in one model of thinking, and it's not entirely discredited, as lots of people think similarly, uh, material scientists, computer scientists who are looking at processing power, uh, 2050 is not very long away. And so imagine a world for a second where every desktop machine has more processing power than all of humanity put together. And what uh, Bostrom asks, and I think it's an important question, is uh, how we control the machines that we're actually developing. And actually, whether or not you believe they'll be as powerful as he and others anticipate, uh, I think that question of control quite closely relates to our moral question of what areas do we want our machines to be involved in, what areas of human life do we want to preserve for human beings? There are, I can offer no easy answers, but I think, uh, frankly, uh, whether or not you've got a job may be the least of it in 150 years' time. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, it's... I agree. It's... Uh, my, my observation about this would be... He, he's a robot, incidentally. He's a... He's <laughs> yeah, he's a I, <laughs> the... Um, I, th I think these long-term long questions are very interesting and fascinating. Uh, but in terms of what we do today, uh, you know, when most people can't, as I said, you know, most people don't have access to the expertise of you know, our best professionals. And many of these systems and machines offer ways to you know, provide more affordable access to legal advice, business advice, educational materials, and so on. We shouldn't let these interesting and exciting and sometimes threatening and scary predictions about the very long term distract us from the near term where you know, there are many systems that offer us not super intelligence but you know, more affordable access to a good education and we should just make sure that we, yeah, that we don't get too, too carried away. Um, Thank you. Yeah, so we have there, and then as you need the microphone to the back row, to the lady there, to the back row. Hi, I'm Carl Gombrich from UCL. Thank you for a wonderful presentation. This is me here speaking here. <laughs> um, I'm a, there's a sound issue up here. Well, I think okay. it's in my head, the sound issue. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah and I can see uh, you. Thank you. That was... Uh, <laughs> all senses fully functioning. <laughs> okay. um, you've touched on this a, a little bit, but there's some parallels between your vision of what's going to happen to the professions and I think and academic disciplines mm. and I just wonder if you could speculate on quite short time horizon maybe the next five to ten years for what you think will happen to higher education perhaps what could happen and what should happen to higher education in that period by higher education are you meaning universities or schools as well universities right um it's interesting we've had uh I mean I, I'm I'm most comfortable talking about law so I'll, I'll talk about law with the legal education and training review which was the first review for 40 years about how we educate our lawyers, which are, much of which was to do with higher education, our, our university degrees and so forth. And um, 
in the end, and it was, I suppose it's a fairly public statement, although I, I was a consultant to it, I was very disappointed in the output because it seemed to me uh, it was a wonderful review of what happened in the 20th century uh, and a way in which we could refine and improve the 20th century, but it very much fell into what Daniel called the first future, and that was you look at the educational system and you see how technology can streamline and optimize the old ways of working. I think what we teach and how we teach will change fundamentally. And the, the how we teach goes right to the heart of, uh, for want of a better term, e-learning. Uh, and although I think it is invaluable on many occasions, and not just that, enjoyable to gather together in a room as we are doing just now and hopefully share the excitement of hearing something new and chatting to people afterwards about it, we have to recognize that so many people around the world are deeply deprived and simply don't have that opportunity. So what Daniel and I talk, distinguish a lot is between improving the existing market and then what we call the latent market. And so that in education, for us, the most exciting possibility is not so much improving over the next five years, although we certainly could do how it is we currently operate in our current institutions, but it's the notion that as, for example, tablets and smartphones become so widely accessible um, across the globe that we can actually be affording a higher education literally to billions of people for whom this has simply been not possible in the past. And so we can have two conversations. We can talk about how we do that or we can talk about how we improve our current system. I think the... Uh, but. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to suggest that the real excitement for me is a higher education for those who can't afford it. But we shouldn't be complacent within higher education. This is one of the best universities in the world. We're sitting in a, uh, a traditional lecture theatre, uh, and I'm sure this will continue for many years yet. Uh, and I hope it continues for many years yet. But we have to widen our horizons and see that there are new immersive learning environments uh, that will fundamentally change the way we teach and learn. And Daniel gave the example of Khan Academy. It is simply remarkable uh, that issues of great complexity in maths can be so effectively taught by online tutorials and can be taught at the pace at which someone wants to move and can be, can be learned on sitting in the train or in the bath and so forth. It's, uh, it's, uh, how, we, how we teach and learn uh, will undoubtedly change. I think also the, the notion of um, collaborative working is going to be increasingly important, as more employers are saying to universities, as I understand it, that we want graduates who are not just individually high performers, but are also excellent team workers. I think we have to be thinking about the way in which we use social media and other collaborative technologies at undergraduate level to encourage, at least for some projects, people to work in teams uh, rather than always flying solo. As to what we're teaching uh, we touched on this earlier, insofar as we're talking about vocational learning. Uh, well, again, I want to stress that I think the fundamental disciplines are important uh, in each field. I do think we need to be widening our horizons and looking at this new skill set and encouraging people who are paying so highly for their education to build up a skill set that will make them employable and will make them relevant. And so I think... Um, Bill Gates is very interesting. He says less happens in two years in technology and more happens in ten. Uh, and so you interestingly, I think, chose five. Uh, so we'll be in the, I think 
within 10 years, if we, if we assembled here in 10 years' time, I, I think the way in which undergraduates, what they learn and how they learn will have changed radically. I don't foresee radical change within the next two or three years. It'll be what we call incremental transformation, three or four steps, each of itself significant, but in combination, I think, fairly dramatic. Looking further ahead, 20 or 30 years' time, I think it's going to be an entirely different ballgame. Yeah, so we have on the back row, and then I would like the microphone go to the absolute back row on the top. There's a gentleman in a very nice suit there, and he will be on the reserve list. So if this is a very long question or a very long answer, you're, you're out of the game, mate, but uh, you might get a chance, okay? It's not going to be a long question, I promise. My name is Ines. I'm a uh, PhD student here in the LSE's International Relations Department, which I guess makes me look at um, your very interesting claims bit of in a sort of comparative global politics uh, fashion. So I guess my questions would be, sorry, it's too back for uh, would be um, kind of to, would, to which extent are the claims you're making actually claims that apply to the world as such, or are you speaking about a very, very, very small elite in Western societies predominantly? And then the second question is, where is this going to lead us in terms of conflict, potentially even war, in, within societies, are we going to lose an entire group of people who will not feel they have any identity, who will not feel they fit in? Um, what is going to happen to those people? Thanks. It's probably time for a shorter answer, so the, the, the <laughs> particularly to difficult questions. Um, our hope is that people will be less disempowered and there will be less sources of conflict, insofar as conflicts caused by uneven distribution of, of, of goods and benefits. We believe one of the greatest goods and benefits is practical expertise, which allows people to sort their problems and live their lives. So insofar as one can root conflict in uneven distribution of goods and benefits, we, we consider that the future should be rosier. That's not to say that, for example, there might not be massive conflicts over... Uh, uh, over the ownership and control if, if things go in a direction that we were discouraging uh, earlier. D does this only apply to the professions? Uh, I, I, it, it, it was a question about does it apply in other countries? Is it, is it just a, a Western phenomenon? Just a Western phenomenon. Um, no, I, I, we, we think not, because uh, the need for professional expertise or practical expertise, although it might not be expressed that way in the, in the same terminology and deploying the same disciplines, we see this as a, a worldwide need and, in fact, a worldwide solution. Is that fair enough? Yeah, yeah that's right. And in, in our research, although most of our research is Anglo-American, I think a lot of the trends and insights uh, appear elsewhere around mm -hmm. the world. Um, the, I mean, the, the, the question about disorder, um, I think that there's a very interesting... If you read the kind of classical sociologists and what they said about work... You know, work isn't just a source of a wage, it's also a source of meaning and purpose. You know, Weber, as Weber called it, a, a vocation, a task set by God. You know, it's where we find um, our meaning and purpose. And in a world in which there is perhaps less work to be done, and again, this is a long-term world, this isn't the medium-term world where we think there's lots of new roles, uh, but in that long-term world, um, we will face the challenge of finding other sources of meaning and purpose that we don't find in work. Yeah, it's not surprising that at the moment we find our meaning and purpose in work, given the fact that we spend most of our time working. <laughs> um, 
it may be that in the future when we don't, we need to find alternatives. I mean, the, the other thing is just to say that I think, a lot of the, I think a lot of people who talk about finding meaning and purpose in work uh, have a, a fairly inaccurate conception of what most people's work is like. You know, um, you know not everyone has the luxury of getting you know, their, their meaning in work and, and, and you know, have, to look, have to look for it elsewhere. But I think in the long term, you know, that's, that is a, a very interesting and challenging question that we'll have to think about. Yeah, it'll have to be very brief up there on the back row. If, do you want us to pull the reserve? Are you ready for it? Very quick. Shoot. So the question was, I found it very interesting, what tasks ought not to be done by machines? And I wanted to know if you had any suggestions. And secondly, presumably because you could just have a human there that pushes a button, is there anything that you can do that can stop um, machines making all sorts of decisions? That's Nick Bostrom's book. Yes, I was going to say that. This is the question of control, as he yes. calls it. Yeah. And, and it doesn't look good. That's the, I'm, I'm giving away the, the ending. It doesn't look good. <laughs> it looked effing awful. But, uh, so this, is, this book has a happy ending. His doesn't. <laughs> Sorry to answer your question. But no, there's a better answer than we would have given. <laughs> On that happy note, I just want... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, ref- <laughs> reflecting. We can't, we can't end with you answering the question. We would feel we're, we're not getting your money's worth. Uh, Go on, Daniel. Take us home. The... The question of what tasks ought to, be not, ought to be done by people. I think the set of things that people feel most uncomfortable about machines doing are those that they want to hold someone or something responsible for. Um, and responsibility is linked, and we've, we've spoken a lot about this, is linked to sort of meaningful choice. And step, for things in which we want meaningful choice to be made in a particular direction, those are probably the sort of things that we don't want a machine to do because you know, they're, not, they're not making a choice. They can't be held responsible in the sense that, that we might like them to. I mean, the, the challenge to that, though, is that there's many things that at the moment we want to hold people responsible for. For example, many of us feel uncomfortable about the idea of a machine making a diagnosis, a medical diagnosis. We want often a person to do it. <laughs> Uh, and uh, partly because we want to hold the person responsible, and partly because many of the machines that exist at the moment aren't as high-performing as people are in certain domains, although that's been challenged. But the question is, in in 50 years, when these systems can outperform the best human beings in in certain types of cancer treatment, for example, you you can see images of this happening, Um, whether or not we'll be as worried about that moral question of consent and responsibility is less clear. Now, I would probably want a machine that has a 98% chance of making the right diagnosis to diagnose me than a person who, at least if he, you know, maybe he makes it, she makes the mistake 30% of the time, I can hold them responsible for it. That doesn't seem, that doesn't seem right. Um, but I think that question of t- tasks for which we want to hold people responsible and tasks for which we want someone or something to have made a meaningful choice um, that f- those for me that's the sort of the set of tasks that we're that we're looking at and thinking about thank you very much uh, just to clarify what's going to happen now is we're going to applaud crazily in a minute but just wait a minute because uh, you can buy the book outside 
and you can take it in here and you can get it signed uh, for about 20 minutes or so. Um, uh, and then before I ask us all to thank them, I just want to say when I bought a property a few years ago, that one criteria I had for a solicitor was I only wanted to email her. So I, I bought a house and sold one on email. So you were clearly... Right. Congratulations. Yes. <laughs> and I think I really, I thought it's a very good question, a very good presentation, very good answers. So should we all congratulate each other on a fantastic <laughs> evening? <laughs>